Our passage in uh, Jeremiah 31 today, it's, it talks about the culmination of Israel's story. You see, Israel, it had been in exile in the land of Babylon, and there was a hope one day that all things would be restored, that the Israelites would come back home, that God would make all things right, that the Lord would gather his people from all over, and there would be dancing and singing and shouting. You know, it says, it says this. It says, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. And continuing on a little longer, it says, the young women rejoice in the dance. The young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And this same hope, the same hope for restoration, it was alive and well in the time of Herod. The people of Israel, they now actually lived in, in the land again. They had been brought back out of exile from Babylon. But the problem was, is they were still under subjugation by the Romans. They were home but their home really wasn't their home. They had a king, but he wasn't really the supreme ruler of the land. You see, Herod, he was only king as far as the Romans allowed him to be. The promises of God's restoration, they had not yet come in its fullness. And so the people longed for a day in which a ruler would rise up and finish everything and restore Israel to its former glory. As it says uh, in, the God, or in, in the prophet Micah, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. This is what the people longed for. This is what the people hoped for. And so one day when some strange men from the east show up in Jerusalem talking about a star, and more importantly talking about someone they call the king of the Jews, you would assume the city would erupt in dance, erupt in songs of joy, just as Jeremiah describes. And yet this is not what happens at all. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we've come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod, indeed the whole city, is frightened at this news. And, and now throughout Scripture, fear towards God is generally looked at as a good thing. Right? Actually, always looked at as a good thing. You know, if we think back to our series over the summer on the book of Proverbs, uh, one of the key themes of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is good and it is right to fear the Lord. Perhaps even be a little frightened of him. It's a good thing. It, it reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, when, when the children discover that Aslan is a lion, uh, Susan and Lucy, they're talking to Mr. Beaver and they ask him, well, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
And if what we're expecting out of Jesus is safe, we've got them all wrong. Jesus, he tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. The most dangerous thing you can do. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so it's good and right to fear the Lord. But Herod's fear is not this kind of reverential fear that the Bible is encouraging out of us. Not at all. And we know this because we actually see the result of Herod's fear. True reverential fear, as Proverbs tells us, leads to wisdom. Truly fearing the Lord will bring us closer to him, bring us in line with his will. But this was not the result of Herod's fear. Shortly after this passage, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 2, you'll find a terrible story of him attempting to murder the boy Jesus, and he ends up slaughtering a whole town of children. This is not fearing the Lord and seeking wisdom. Herod was frightened, not because he was witnessing the unfolding of of God's plan, God's revelation before his eyes. He's not frightened because he's about to meet God's Messiah who is going to restore all things. No, he's frightened because the birth of a king meant the end of his reign. Herod was getting on in years. Just shortly after this story, Herod dies. And he was coming to an, his life was coming to an end, and it was time to think about the future, about the continuation of his government. And the thing about governments is during transition of power is when they seem to be the weakest. It's certainly true today, and it was doubly true in Herod's time. So when, when he hears the birth of a king, he's frightened. Whereas we would call the birth of Jesus good news, the gospel The birth of one called the king of the Jews was terrible news for Herod. Instead of dancing for joy and shouting praises to the Lord from the top of Zion, Herod is deeply, deeply disturbed by this news. The word here for frightened, it connotes this kind of shaking, trembling, inward turmoil. He is deeply, deeply disturbed by this news. In the moment in which God's plan for salvation begins to unfold, all Herod could think about was self-preservation. He could only think about himself. He didn't think for a minute what the promised Messiah would mean for Israel, let alone the rest of the world. Contrast this with the response of the wise men. It says this. It says, when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. Just like Jeremiah describes, overwhelmed with joy. And mind you, these men, they're not Jews. They probably came from Babylon or Persia. They know very little about the promises of Israel. They had to stop and get directions along the way. Someone had to show them the Bible. They don't know these things. And their focus on astrological phenomena probably means they're pagan. They're not followers of the Lord. Even more, this newborn king, he is not their king. At least they don't know him that way yet. They're from a different land. And yet when they find this child with his mother in this house, they're overwhelmed with joy. Even more, we read, they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
On meeting this newborn king, the wise men responded with gifts fit for a king. And many, many people discuss at length all the cool little theological, you know, intricacies of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, but I think most simply what we're supposed to get out of that is that these are incredibly high-quality, rare gifts. These are gifts that you give kings. And these wise men, they brought their best to this newborn king. They did not hold back from him. They came with no ulterior motive. They're not there to broker some peace treaty or to secure a place in this new king's court or try to ensure their own preservation of power. They came with one reason and one reason only, to give a welcome fit for a king. And I reflect on my own life and I think about how sometimes I feel like I'm more like Herod than I am like these wise men. You know, we might say, Jesus is good news. We might, like Herod, even claim to desire to pay homage to Christ. You know, this word homage here, um, it's actually the same word for worship. And so when the, when the uh, wise men show up, they want to go and worship this newborn king. And Herod, he claims he wants to worship this newborn king as well. We can outwardly worship our Lord. We can claim allegiance to him in front of other people. We can honor his name before others. But inwardly, our motives are for ourselves and directed at our own self-preservation. You know, perhaps we might never reach Herod's level of self-preservation. But many of us approach the Lord with the sort of half-hearted worship uh, that Herod desired to perform before the Lord. And even more of us, I think we feel frightened by the reality of what it means to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. You know, we, we feel convicted over sin and vice, but at the same time, we can't imagine how we could ever live without them. We feel the Spirit tugging at our heart when we see someone in need, but at the same time, we think, I, I really can't help them. It would just be way too uncomfortable. We sense the Lord uh, perhaps telling us to pursue a less financially lucrative job or move to a less desirable place or maybe give up a little bit of our comfort in order to trust him more. And we think, I can follow Jesus, but I cannot follow him that far. And we, like Herod, we hear that Jesus is king. And we immediately start wondering, what does that mean for me? How does this negatively impact me? What will it cost me? What will I have to give up? Or even worse, how can I get out of it? I don't like giving up things. My parents, they're moving right now, and so they're going through all of our stuff. And I told my mom, don't tell me what you're getting rid of. Just get rid of it all. Like, I don't want it. I, don't, I, I like, haven't seen it in 15 years. But um, my mom's like, oh, yeah, we, we, we uh, took your Super Nintendo to the thrift store. And I'm like, my Super Nintendo, I got that when I was like five, and it was like the coolest thing in the world. And I was like, Mom, you can't tell me this stuff. And, she, and then, she, but she told me, she's like, we kept your trophies from soccer, though. I'm like, why? <laughs> I think my mom is watching. I don't know if Zoom is on, but uh, love you, Mom. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, we don't like losing things. We want to hang on to what we have. And when we hear that Jesus is king, we fear uh, what it means for us. You know, 
Too few of us, I think, stop for a moment and really think about what does it mean for Jesus to be king. Herod knew. He knew exactly what it meant for Jesus to be king. He knew it would cost him everything, and he couldn't do it. He knew it would cost him his kingdom, his wealth, his power, and so with tyrannical rage, he lashes out to save himself. But many of us, we are completely, completely unaware of the demand that is placed upon us when we follow Jesus. And I think we have a hard time understanding kingship in America. After all, you know, 250-some-odd years ago, we overthrew our, our king. The monarchy, it's gone. We don't like kings in America. We fear the prospect of one person holding supreme authority over the entire country. It's, it's hard for us to see how an autocracy doesn't just always devolve into tyranny. And if there's anything in America we hate more than kings, it's tyrants. A perfect example is Herod. This guy is so paranoid, so paranoid about losing his power that he attempts to murder a child and ends up murdering multitudes more. It's disgusting. It's evil. It's tyrannical. And so we think, what good can possibly come from one person reigning over us? And so for many of us, when we hear that Jesus is king, we don't take that seriously. Not because I think we think Jesus is going to be a tyrant. I think most of us understand that Jesus is like Aslan. He's ultimately good. But simply because we've completely gutted the category of kingship in our society. When Jesus is king, it means nothing to us. We ask ourselves, who, who is in charge of your life? Who is responsible for your well-being? Who determines your future? Our society's answer to that question is yourself. You are the Lord of your own life. You are kings and queens over the sovereign nation of you. No one, no one has the right to tell you who you are or who you will be or what you think. We are all our own walking, talking, absolute monarchies. And let's face it. Many of us are quite tyrannical in our rule. If I'm going to be honest with myself and ask myself, who is the most important person in my life? My answer would be myself. You know, you can live without your friends. You can live without your family. As hard as it would be, you could live without your spouse and your children. But quite very literally, you cannot live without yourself. Try it. It doesn't work. By our very nature, we are predisposed to be selfish. And certainly, there is a great amount of selflessness in our world. And certainly, in this room, there are many people, men and women, who I admire their selfless attitude. But I bet if you were to ask them about their selfless lifestyle, they would talk about how difficult it is, how often they are tempted to do the selfish thing. Selflessness does not come naturally. Selflessness is the exception that makes the rule. We are selfish to the core in everything we do, we do to maintain our own power. As little power as we might have in our own lives, we do that to maintain that power over our own lives to give us some semblance of control. We lie, we steal, we cheat our way through life in order to maintain this illusion that I am the Lord of my life. 
We feel threatened when the needs of others are highlighted, assuming that it means that their needs will outweigh our own. Whenever change comes along, we immediately think of, of how this is going to negatively impact me rather than how it might benefit my neighbor. We worry that generosity will leave us broke and starving. And when we hear that Jesus is king, we shake with fear. We don't really want him to call the shots of our lives. We're almost content to view Jesus as an accessory. Something useful, something kind of neat, but not really essential to how we live our lives. I think for myself included, I think often a lot of us, instead of viewing Jesus as king, we kind of view him as president. Someone who we choose, we elect to guide us and to protect us, maybe only even for a time when we like really need him. But ultimately, we, we have control over him because we're the one that declare him president at the end of the day. And for some reason, if things change in our life or different needs arise or we just kind of move on from him, we can elect a different person to be the president over our life, someone who more closely aligns with my own selfish ambition. But Jesus is not president. He is not someone who we can toss aside at the end of his term he is king of the universe. He's king of the Jews. He is the king of you. And please don't mishear me. I'm not trying to critique our political system or anything like that. And I certainly am not trying to you know, minimize the real plight of those in our world who are powerless. But what I'm trying to critique is, is how we go about living our own lives, assuming that we're the ones calling the shots. For many of us, the news that Jesus is king seems more as a threat. We fear surrendering our lives completely to him. What if it turns out this roaring lion, not only dangerous, but he's also not that good? What if by following him we completely derail our lives? What if by bending my knee to this newborn king... I lose my entire kingdom. I think too often we, we think about what we might lose if we follow Jesus rather than what we might gain. But how has living as a tyrant worked out in our lives? I'm sure for some it's worked out rather well. You might live pretty comfortably. You might have everything you need. You might have everything you want. But at the same time, how much dissatisfaction do we really experience in our lives because of this? How much of it stems from this anxiety we have in our lives from trying to maintain everything we have and attempting to not lose everything? The irony of our self-proclaimed tyrannical lordship over our own lives is that it's impossible to maintain. Herod, his dynasty would eventually come to an end. And actually in a rather unspectacular way, his last living heir died in his old age without a child kind of went away. And our tyranny is doomed just as Herod's is. You know, we spend the majority of our lives striving to accumulate our own power and protect it by any means, by making our own meaning in our life, just to succumb to death. But God 
has given us the key to life and death. His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has triumphed over the powers of death, and he has prepared a place for us in the new Jerusalem. Elsewhere in Matthew, Matthew 13, there's a very short, beautiful parable that Jesus tells. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had, and he bought it. This merchant, he sells everything he has for this one single pearl because he knows this pearl is more valuable than everything that he has combined. And now our money-minded society might look at this as a very bad investment. We just watched a man completely destroy the diversity of his portfolio. If the price of pearls drops, this guy's got nothing. But we're missing the point there. The point is is that this pearl, this pearl is the kingdom of of heaven. It's a commodity not of this world. It is not subject to the forces of the market. It does not lose its value, but its worth far, far exceeds anything we can find here on earth. And when these wise men rolled up to that house that one day and saw the light from the star shining upon it, they knew they'd found something that far exceeds the value of anything that they had with them. So they unloaded their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. And they gave a welcome fit for a king. When we find the king, let's shout for joy. Because we have found the one thing that far exceeds any value of anything here on earth. We should fall to our knees. Let us fall to our knees and offer our gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh in order for us to give a welcome to this king. So my question for you on this last day of the year is will you welcome this newborn king? Will you receive him with joy or will you shake with fright? Will you allow Jesus to be the king of your life. May it be so.